Uh, the scripture this morning is from Exodus 12. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you said, and go. And also bless them. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry into the country, for otherwise they said we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. I also continue to read from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, which reads as follows. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Jesus reached the spot. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray together. Just like you came near to an unworthy sinner so many years ago, Jesus. We pray that you would draw near to unworthy sinners such as us. And just like you surprised him and changed him by your grace and by your love and kindness, we pray that you would change us. And so we lay ourselves bare before you and ask that you would bless your word and let it do its work in our hearts individually as a church community and even spilling over into the lives of our neighbors, our neighborhood, our city, and even into our world. So we're expecting much of you because you are God and we are not. We put our hope in you, Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We are today continuing our study that we began last week, our study of the biblical concept of reparations. Reparations, of course, the word itself refers to repair, the repair of what has been ripped in the social fabric of our relationships, of our society, and even in the church. It also refers to return. The return of what has been sinfully ripped off. And as we said last week, that this time together, sitting on this topic, is 
not at all an attempt to prescribe to anyone one's view or position on public policy. We're not primarily focusing on federal government reparations leading decisions and determinations such as those to one's individual conscience. We also make sure to say, and I'll say again, that we don't intend this time to be a personal attack on our white brothers and sisters either, as this topic so often can be received or even has in many places been weaponized and intended to be received in that sort of way. Rather, our focus is on our shared responsibility, our shared responsibility, particularly as Christians. We're talking about the responsibility to bring healing, to bring repair. The problem of racism across black history and American history, as we saw last week, is not just racism defined as personal prejudice, but rather racism defined as robbery. And if we look closely at the story of American history, and in particular of the African American community, that we see that that story is riddled <coughs> with tragic and terrible markers, evidences of mass cultural robbery, beginning with the kidnapping and the enslavement of Africans, continuing on into the long, centuries-long story of the theft of body, the theft of dignity, the theft of, of family and of education and opportunity, the theft of wealth and community and in story. And so what we're talking about here is, is not simply financial deficits. It's not simply the theft of wealth, but rather something far more comprehensive. Both material as well as non-material ways in which things have been sinfully taken from the black community. And we're also not just talking about the events of slavery from the 17th through 19th century in this country's history, but we're also talking about the decades that followed Jim Crow, eras of segregation and subjugation, even continuing on to the present day. It's important for us to note as we talk about these things that this is certainly meant, in one sense, to put a spotlight on the grace of God that has carried forward our dear black brothers and sisters and their families for many, many centuries. It deepens our appreciation of their resilience, their mercy and forgiveness time and again, their perseverance, and their display of hope against hope. And so, of course, we pause to say to all of you who embody that story, thank you. Thank you. We learn from you. We benefit from your and your family's perseverance, your kindness, your patience, your love. So then what are we to do with this long record of racist robbery? We considered that question and we saw that the Bible tells us that the right response to the sin of stealing is a particular kind of love of neighbor, a practice of body, in something that the Bible calls restitution. And the principle of restitution basically sounds 
like this. If you steal something, guess what? You have to give it back. If you steal something, you have to give it back. This is what we see in the life and testimony of Zacchaeus in the city of Jericho. It's an incredible story that teaches, among other things, that anyone, even the most hardened of thieves, anyone can find God's forgiveness. Zacchaeus was a tax collector who, in verse 2, was, we're told, was wealthy. He was rich. And evidently, he gained his wealth by doing what tax collectors did, which was continually overcharge the people around them in order to line their own pockets. Tax collectors were known for being people of extortion and dishonesty, even robbery. Until one day, Jesus came to town and treated Zacchaeus with astonishing kindness and grace. He invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for the evening, shared a meal, treated him like no one else. And guess what? It was radical kindness that changed Zacchaeus. We need to hear that again. It was radical kindness. The sort that only Jesus can give that changed him. So perhaps if the kindness was surprising, maybe we shouldn't be surprised of its transformative effect. In verse 8 we see Zacchaeus rise up almost as if to make a, a promise of an oath where he says this, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus, as a Jewish person, was, of course, abiding by the laws of restitution that we find all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. In places like Numbers chapter 5, which we looked at last week, other places like Exodus 22, Leviticus 6. It's a lost ethic today. We've almost forgotten that the Bible talks like this, but it's confirmed again and again, and not only in the Bible itself, but from the words of theologians that have read the Bible in the 16th century, in the 17th century, the 18th century, and time and again have told us that this is what Christians are to do. If you steal something, you have to give it back. And so they tell us that restitution was required, and not only in the Old Testament times, but even today. It's not enough just to say you're sorry for having taken someone else's things. You are required to return it to them. We're told that atonement is made not by restitution itself. You are not paying God off. Rather, atonement is made by a substitutionary sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was a ram. In the New Testament, and even till today, it's by the ram, though the lamb, and his name is Jesus. So restitution doesn't atone, and it doesn't cleanse us of our sins, but it is, we're told, a condition of forgiveness. Because if you're holding on to the thing that you stole, you're basically stealing it all over again. You're refusing to repent. You're refusing to unload that thing that you claimed wrongly to be yours. And those that do not repent and confess do not truly Embrace the grace and mercy of God. 
And we're also told that if the person to whom you owe restitution has died, then you are still obligated to give it to that person, but now via his or her descendants. That responsibility doesn't just disappear as time passes. You actually are obligated to give it to those who would have received it by inheritance or gift over time. And if the one who owes the restitution dies, then likewise the descendants of that person who has inherited that possession must now owe the payment of restitution. We are called to make restitution for all our thefts and robberies. And this is true in all of life. It's an ethic that we must recover in the life of the church and in our daily practice of neighbor love, even as we talked last week about the importance of developing what you might call an ethic of restitution for slander. When you steal somebody's good name or rob them of their reputation, that you actually must unsay what was said. You must give back to them what you had taken in your public affirmation in your kind words. It's something that we must do in all of life, but in particular, we're also then called to seek the return to our black brothers and sisters of all that was ripped off by the mass multi-generational theft and robbery of racism. This is a Christian calling. This is what we find in the pages of the Bible. But then I acknowledge and we acknowledge that a series of questions may come to some of your minds. Questions like these. Well, what if the acts of robbery took place a long, long, long time ago? What then? What if you weren't the only person involved in it? Maybe not even the main person involved, but you were just kind of tangentially part of it. Or thirdly, what if a, a group that you're a part of was the one who did the sinful taking. What, what then? Would you then still be bound to make restitution, to give back what was sinfully taken? And the Bible's answer to all of these appears to be yes. That first question touches on the problem of time. What if these sins were committed a long, long, even long time ago? Well, first of all, already we learned that there's a continuing responsibility of restitution that passes on to the descendants of the one who owes it. It doesn't just simply disappear. Uh, to hold on to what was sinfully stolen and then passed on to you by inheritance over time is what Ezekiel Hopkins, a theologian centuries ago, called a continued and prolonged theft. So you have to give it back, even if it's an old theft, not because everyone, including God, is holding a grudge, but simply because it doesn't belong to you. And it belongs to someone else and someone else's family. But also, as Matthew Henry, an old teacher of the Bible, theologian, once wrote, time will not wear out the guilt of sin. This, of course, is grounded in God's nature, his eternal and time-unbounded nature. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 puts it this way, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a 
thousand years are like a day. And so an act of robbery committed two, three hundred years ago in the mind of God is something that happened a second ago. There is no statute of limitations under God's moral law. The guilt of old, old, unrepented sins don't simply expire and disappear in the wind. Those sins of long ago might be more complicated to untangle, yes. And in seeking to untangle them, we must be careful not to create new injustices, yes. But restitution, the Bible tells us, can and must be made even for old, old instances of robbery. The second question I mentioned addresses the ethics of what's often called complicity. What if you weren't the only or even the main person involved? The Bible has a bit to say about this idea of complicity being an indirect cause of theft, an accomplice. And the Bible tells us that you too, in that role, bear moral responsibility. The Bible recognizes this in, in well-known places like Romans chapter 1, verse 32 where the Apostle Paul talks about the guilt of humanity, where he says they, all of us, not only continue to do these very things, these things that are condemnable before God, our sins, but also approve of those who practice them. We're told also in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 24, the accomplices of thieves are their own enemies. There's a recognition of this moral category of complicity, and we have a rich Christian heritage that addresses it, especially in relation to restitution. Thomas Aquinas, centuries ago, talked about those who cooperate with the primary thief. And he says they don't bear the exact same responsibility for that sin, but they still do bear responsibility, and therefore in many cases must also make restitution. The Puritan Richard Baxter, also from centuries ago, wrote this, that those that concur in the injury, being accessories, are also bound to make restitution. And then he spells out eight types of ways in which we can become accomplices to the sins of theft. Eight ways, he says, we're talking about those that teach or command another to do it, those who send a commission or authorize another to do it, those who counsel, exhort, or persuade another to do it, those who by consenting are the causes of it, those who cooperate and assist in the injury knowingly and voluntarily, those who hinder it not when they could and were obliged to do it, those who make the act their own by owning it or consenting afterward, those who will not reveal it afterward, that the injured party may recover his own when they are obliged to reveal it. And of course, we could go on for a long time to unpack what each of those things mean, and some of those phrasings may not be immediately obvious to you as to their meaning. But let me summarize all of that as follows. We're being told that not only active perpetrators are responsible for making restitution, but also those who support acts of theft. 
People who encourage or give shelter to a thief. Who enjoy his booty. Who refuses to, den who refuse to denounce the act. Which of course includes silent bystanders who possess the power to stop it. Come back to this in a second. Because I want to move to the third and final question that we mentioned earlier that addresses what you might call the ethics of corporate responsibility. But what if you didn't individually or personally do anything, but maybe you're part of a group that did the sinful taking? Well, guess what? We have throughout the pages of the Bible, the Bible, ways in which individuals own responsibility for what actually our group sin. Those groups being a tribe, or the nation of Israel, or local churches, or the whole of the people of God. And so we find in Daniel chapter 9, the prophet Daniel, a, a man throughout that book who is described as being righteous, praying as such, to us, oh, not to them, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because they are no, we, we have sinned against you. Someone says, well, that's the way the Old Testament often sounded. We're different now. We're more individuals in the new covenant. Sorry. Of many, many pa other passages that could be mentioned here, Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus himself speaks almost in letter form to the church in Ephesus. So this is a, a region of churches. Many, many people, yes, lumped in together. And this is what he says to them, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you, plural, have Fallen, repent, plural, and do the works you did at first. And I'm almost certain there was some good deacon in Ephesus who said, Hey, hold on a second here. I've been doing all right. Or some family who could testify to their continuing faith, humility, and righteousness before God. And yet here Jesus himself says, No, I'm looking at you as a group who share responsibility together. In my name. Of course, individual members of the group don't have the same degree of responsibility as if we were to treat them like they personally committed those sins that others on the other side of the community perhaps did. But there still is an important principle that we share responsibility for the sins of the groups of which we are a part, even if we ourselves individually did not commit them. What we're talking about here are the ethical challenges of, of the clock, time long ago, of complicity and of corporate responsibility. And if we listen to the Bible and all that it says, not only about these things, but about its its relationship to restitution and our continuing obligation to make it to those from whom we've simply taken things, then we arrive at an understanding that this conversation about reparations must also include conversations about the culpability 
and the responsibility of the American church. Because in the earliest days of colonial America, in the earliest days, Christians could not be owned as slaves. That was the case until 1667, when Christian lawmakers in Virginia passed laws that guaranteed that slaves who were converted and then baptized did not actually have to be free. In other words, Christians in positions of legal authority, under the blessing of the Christians that surrounded them, opted to distort Christian doctrine, namely the doctrine of baptism, rather than suffer financial loss in being forced to emancipate their slaves. And this, in fact, set the course for the prevailing view over the next 200 years that Christianity would be a religion that would save your soul from damnation, but would not save your soul from whipping chains. The Bible, of course, was regularly used in church pulpits, Christian homes, and printed pamphlets to justify, with chapter and verse, justify the kidnapping, the enslavement, the trade, and the horrendous abuse of Africans. The Bible was also used by slave masters to control and subjugate their slaves, as we hear in the cold and literally dehumanizing words of one slave Catechism, a tool of Christian instruction that was written by the Presbyterian minister Charles Jones in 1834. Question, what did God make you for? Answer, to make cry. What did God make you for? Answer, to make a cry. The end of the Civil War didn't end Christian propagation of unabashed white supremacy. For example, the esteemed minister and theologian Robert Daphne in 1867 publicly argued against the ordination of black freedmen using these words. Now, who that knows the Negro does not know that his is a subservient race, that he is made to follow and not to lead. And his temperament, idiosyncrasy, and social relation make him untrustworthy as a depository of power. We could go on to point to the popular work, The Negro a Beast, published in 1900 by Charles Carroll, that supported what he claimed to be biblical, quote-unquote, and scientific facts that proved the Negro to be an ape and which, even while unbiblical, did successfully add moral weight to popular Christian suspicions about the basic inferiority of African Americans. We could point to the unspeakable violence performed frequently in the name of Jesus in the late 19th and early 20th century. Lynchings by mobs and bombings of black homes and churches by the Ku Klux Klan, again, in the name of Jesus. In some of these cases, 
One might rightly claim that Orthodox Christians would have disagreed with those views and that behavior, but the fact remains that they did not do so publicly. And certainly not sufficiently to curb this violence and evil. We could point also to Mississippi Governor and Senator Theodore Bilbo's words in 1947, there's absolutely no foundation for advocating the mixing of the blood of the races as part of our religious doctrines. We could point again to the organized resistance of Christians against desegregation after the Supreme Court's passing Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. And we could cite as an example the words of Bob Jones, who in 1960, a radio address there that was later turned into a pamphlet widely distributed, which described desegregation as an effort to, quote, disturb God's established order, and declared this in no uncertain terms, if you are against segregation and against racial separation, then you are against God Almighty, because he made racial separation, God is the author of segregation. We could point to many other examples, many, many tragic and surely depressing examples of the way in which the church was complicit with other institutional forces that promoted the racial theft and robbery of black Americans. So many examples could we point to, in fact, that we actually find in every one of these eras, Christians, both white and black, that testify to the church's responsibility for these evils. And so we hear abolitionist James Burney call the American church the bulwark of slavery. Or black abolitionist and professing Christian Frederick Douglass in 1852, who wrote this, the American church is guilty when viewed in connection with what it is doing to uphold slavery, but it is superlatively guilty when viewed in connection with its ability to abolish slavery, the sin of which it is guilty is one of omission as well as commission. Similar views communicated by Philadelphia minister and theologian Albert Barnes, who ministered at the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he wrote, there is no power out of the church that could sustain slavery, even for one year, if the church should turn her artillery against it. And yet she would not. Francis Grimke, an African-American minister for many decades of 15th Street Presbyterian Church, down on 15th and R, not far from here, where he ministered until 1928, wrote this, the men who have been most active in promoting Jim Crow car legislation and bringing about all forms of discrimination and holding the race up to contempt and saying the bitterest things against it have not all been outside of the church. No, many of them have not only been in the church but have held high places in it. It is a humiliating confession to make, but it is true. The church today is the great bulwark of race prejudice in this country. It is doing more than any other single agency to uphold it, to make it respectable, to encourage people to continue in it. It not only upholds it within its own peculiar institutions, but furnishes an example to the non-believing world to do the same. You may be familiar with the words of 
Dr. King in his letter from a Birmingham jail where he writes this, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice. We will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I've watched white churchmen stand on the sidelines and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. Keep in mind as I read through all of these that these testimonies, this grave assessment of the culpability of American Christians was not spoken by haters, but lovers of the church. Indeed, they were simply being truth-tellers. Truth-tellers of a reality that we all need to grapple with, and that is simply this, that the American church, American Christians, bear responsibility collectively. That we, can we use these pronouns? We are culpable as active perpetrators, as accomplices, and as silent, negligent bystanders before the racist robberies of our black brothers and sisters over the last 400 years, and therefore we must make restitution. And let me be clear, though, that it's not only our culpability that puts us on the hook here. It's also our missional identity, our calling as God's people. One of the features of this story that's often lost in Luke 19 is that Zacchaeus' name in the original Hebrew version of it actually means righteous and pure. There might be a little hint of irony there. This man of a sordid soul, marked by extortion and theft, who then changes by the grace of God, who gives up almost everything that he owns in restitution and in joy, and in so doing, finally begins to live up to his name. The work of reparations is not only a vital part of our repentance, the work of reparations is part of the church, God's people, fulfilling our very identity as people of equity, generosity, and neighbor love. This is not simply about us doing transactional work of splitting hairs and trying to find out if Ancestry.com can verify that I owe a few bucks. This is about us following the footsteps of our Savior, who said, I'm going to give and give and give again to heal wounds, even to the point of dying. Oh, friends, this is a call to die. For neighbor, because of love. Reparations is a work of love. Reparations is a work of beauty. 
preparation is the work of Christ. What can this look like practically? There's a lot that we could say, and I'll say briefly, and I want to make sure that we have time for Q&A so we can work out some of this in a little bit. But what might it look like for the church to own some of the responsibility to restore and return stolen wealth from the black community? Considering the ways in which African Americans over the centuries had been denied home ownership, which continues to be one of the most significant wealth-building and wealth-inheriting tools that we have in our economy, could it be an opportunity for the church to purchase a property and to find ways to sell at more affordable costs to different individuals that qualify for home ownership or property ownership, ways in which there can be a reinvestment into the community, uh, sort of better late than never, enabling people to accrue inheritable wealth, something that they can pass on from generation to generation, a, a financial reinvestment as an act of repentance and restitution for the things in terms of material wealth that have been robbed. Princeton Theological Seminary recently, in the past few months, announced that after a thorough study that demonstrated that part of their endowment actually has been built upon revenues obtained through slave, their participation in slave ownership, that, that money actually has, that money has actually now been set aside as a work of reparations, $26 million, for the purposes of scholarships, doctoral fellowships the hiring of a full-time director for the Center of Black Church Studies. Uh, what could it look like for other Christian institutions, organizations, local churches to take steps like this? But again, it's important that we see this as a holistic work and not simply a financial one. So we must raise what does it look like to be committed to the restoration and return of truth? What would it look like for us to be committed to unsay the lie? Uh, to heal the slander, to make sure that we climb to the mountaintop to tell the truth about black dignity, to, to be chief protectors and chief advocates for the model day expressed in the lives of those in the black community, to retell the true history of these things that too often has been silenced or shoved into a corner or barked down. What could it look like to grapple with these things as a Christian responsibility here ourselves as a local church, even in the most modest of ways, or perhaps as, as a Grace DC network, as a maybe even a family of churches across the District of Columbia, and perhaps by God's grace, even a movement of churches across the country? What could it look like for the church to be a part of a gospel-empowered, biblically-rooted movement? of reparation. Because this is the story of God's redeemed people. Which is what we're reminded of in this passage that we read in the beginning from Exodus 12. It's the story of Israel's departure from their land of bondage and slavery. God told about it in Exodus chapter 3 re-upped his commitment to it in chapter 11, and here in chapter 12 we hear about it actually taking place. 
Verses 35 and 36, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptian for articles of silver and gold for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. And you say, what is going on here? Well, let me tell you what John Calvin saw in this passage when he commented on it, and what he saw was, a form of restitution. The Egyptians, he said, dressed up in spoils, those whom they had pillaged before. The Hebrews took nothing which was not their own, but only the wages which were due to them, and certainly it would have been just that their labor should have been recompensed in some way. See, corporate restitution for sins long past, even among people who individually may not have committed them, have always been a central part of the redemption story of God's people, right here in the story of the Exodus, the program of the salvation of God's people for all time. No one should get this better than Christians. And in fact, enslaved Christians in the 18th and 19th centuries didn't miss it. Well, at least those who were enslaved and who gathered secretly to worship Christ, huddled together singing spirituals and hearing the word preached. They didn't miss this and they didn't need John Calvin to grasp it. It's why they sang in the old spiritual go down Moses no more shall they in bondage toil, let my people go. Let them come out with Egypt's spoil, let my people go. Reparations, then, is an invitation for Christians today to simply embody this story, but with a stunning reversal. Do you catch it? That is, God's people now playing the role of Egypt. Moved by God's hand, moved to lavish generosity, Move to give of themselves to repay what was sinfully taken, even from generations past, even by those who personally didn't do the taking, in order that those who were formerly robbed and oppressed might be free at last. Let's pray. And so we're asking God simply, simply, that you would heal us. That you would heal your people. That you would heal your nation. That you would give us grace to see you, Jesus, and your life-transforming kindness as you come before our sycamore fig trees. And you call us down, help us to come down, to come down from the perches of superiority, to come and humble ourselves and repent and to rejoice in a way that causes our lives to overflow with kingdom generosity. Make this so in our church. Make this so in your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all sing together. Let's sing.